American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Okay, we are recording officially. All right, let's talk so about your colonoscopy. No, no more colonoscopy talk. All right. Never mind. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And together, we form history for jerks. That's right. Wonder and Twins activate. <laughs> okay, and today... We are going to talk about 1958. That's true. We are going to blab, continue our blabbing about 1958. We only got through January last time, so we got a lot to cover. Right. We're doing a February, March, and... Touch of April. Peek our toes into April. Just a little little green on the grass. A little tiny peek into April. Just a little gander. Just a little... The birds are just starting to peep. In April. Right. So let's get to it, shall we? Because I got a lot of stuff that happened, and most of it's terrible. All right, let's hear it. The 50s were awful. Make America Great Again? Yeah, like the shitty 50s where everybody died because accidents were a plenty. All right, what's- Starting with February 1st. Okay. 1958 was a Saturday, and 47 people were killed in the collision of a U.S. Air Force C-118A transport plane with 41 people on board and a U.S. Navy P-2V Neptune patrol plane with a crew of seven. Oh, boy. The planes collided over the Los Angeles suburb of Norwalk, California. Oh, gosh. That's not good. That is not good. The C-118 plane crashed into the parking lot of the Norwalk Sheriff's Department Whoa. At, at the intersection, intersection of Firestone Boulevard and Pioneer Boulevard, and there were no survivors. I wouldn't think so. Two men survived the crash of the P2V, which came down in a vacant area at the Santa Fe Springs Fire Station. A woman in Norwalk was killed 3,000 feet from the C-118 crash site as she stepped outside of her home to see what had happened and was cut in half by a flying fragment. Holy shit. Yes. Can you imagine being that woman? What's the whole commotion? Isn't it also kind of weird that one of them crashed at the police station one of them crashed at the fire station? Isn't that weird? And it was two militaries yeah. that weren't speaking to each other. And it was all the services are gone. Oh, my God. It was a big fucking snafu. And that poor lady got like, cut then, in half. Then they had to wait for like neighboring towns emergency services to show up because they probably decimated their own by yeah. crashing into it. <laughs> yep. And there's no cell phone footage of this because cell phones weren't around yet. That's nuts. Yep. Can you imagine getting split in half by a flying fragment? It was your time to go. That would not feel good. Yeah, you, you're <laughs> not getting away from this one. That uh, That is a odd thing to happen. That is a tragedy. We shouldn't laugh about it. Uh, February 5th, 1958, the Tybee Island mid-air collision was another accident on February 5th, 1958, in which the United States Air Force lost a 7,600-pound Mark 15 nuclear bomb in the oh waters of Tybee Island near Savannah, Georgia. Oh, my God. They lost it? Yeah. A 7,600-pound Mark 15 hydrogen bomb was dropped into the waters off the coast of Tybee Island 
after the U.S. Air Force B-47 bomber carrying it collided with a U.S. Navy F-86 fighter at an altitude of 35,000 feet. The Air Force emphasized that the bomb was not assembled so that it could not be detonated, and the bomb was never recovered. So again, the Army and the Navy need to get on the same the, page uh, here. The Air Force Air, and the air Navy. Air traffic control yeah, sorry, needs to be uh, invented, maybe. Maybe they need to invent some air traffic control. <laughs> I don't know if they do that. I mean, if it's the forces, do they need to they listen to They have to. You have control? to have air, air traffic control. Well, apparently not. You can just let balloons fly wherever you want. Yeah, that's true. And then Tuesday, February 11th, in notable African-American history, it's Black History Month. Let's get into it, shall we? Beow, 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 beow. Ruth Carol Taylor. Do you know what amazing black history person she is? I do not. Ruth Carol Taylor became the first African-American stewardess. Oh. Working on a Mohawk Airlines flight between the New York between New York City and Ithaca, New York. Her career would only last six months, though, not because of race, but because she had gotten married and the airline had a discriminatory discriminatory yep. barrier on married flight attendants. That's right. You couldn't be a married flight attendant. That's right. I know. Isn't that awful? Isn't that crazy and bad? And oh, that was the ha- wasn't the half of it with the sexism that stewardesses had. Well, we endure. can't even say stewardess. That's sexism, probably. Right. I mean, well, then they called them stewardesses, so that's why we're saying it, right? Right. Correct. Okay, good. Just checking to see if you're more misogynistic than I am. No. I, that's what they were called at the time, yes. is what I'm saying. Me too. That's why I said it. Oh, okay. But, yeah, so Ruth Carroll Taylor, now you know amazing, mediocre people in African history. I mean, it's not that she's mediocre. But I was stu- going to say. But a stewardess is kind of mediocre, but she broke a color barrier. I was going to say, you know, it doesn't matter how mediocre the job is. Yeah, right. To be the first black person to to break a barrier well, it just shines a light got on. To be, There's barriers even on mundane jobs that you don't think are that right. great. But it's you, they still weren't allowed to do it. Like it's so you, dumb. You've got to endure so much abuse oh to be God. the first one of doing anything of that of any. Well, just how sad is it? Nobody thinks about that. Somebody no. had to be the first African American mail carrier, probably. You know, like anything yeah. you can think of. Yeah, that's the most mundane job. Sorry, Rob Shields, uh, postal worker that I know. Not to say it's the worst job ever, but. Right. You know, I mean, somebody was the first because they weren't allowed to do things, but you don't think about, I don't know, it's just sad. It is. But no, so she was amazing, I'm sure. Yes. I mean, I mean, maybe she was mean or something. Maybe she hurt somebody's feelings once. What are you but... talking about? <laughs> well, I don't know the person personally, so. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm sure Ruth can... Carroll Taylor, but she broke a barrier. That's she right. She broke a glass ceiling. That's right. Is glass ceiling only for women, or can yeah, is that for everything? Not sure. Not sure on I that one. I was just equated with women. Yeah. Anyway, Ruth Carroll Taylor is probably a fine person. February 16th, 1958 was a Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, a Korean Airlines flight from Busan to Seoul in South Korea with 26 passengers and two American pilots mm-hmm. was hijacked Ooh. by eight gunmen who had bought tickets for the flight. Oh. The airplane was then flown to North Korea. North Korea released the group to the United Nations officials on March 6th at the border station at Penmunjom, but kept the airplane. Oh, they did? Yeah, they kept it. Wow. And uh, so that that hijacking was the same day mm-hmm. that we have a birthday. Hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip. Great fans of all time. Amy, Amy hates birthday. 
stage name yeah. is withheld because you'll know who this is if I say that. So okay. the person's name is Tracy Marrow, and he's an American rapper born in Newark, New Jersey. He was the son of Solomon and Alice Marrow. Uh, his father was African-American, and his mother, Alice, was from a Louisiana Creole background. For decades, Solomon worked as... Wait. Sorry. When Morrow was a child, mm -hmm. his family moved to upscale Summit, New Jersey. The first time race played a major part in his life was at the age of seven when he became aware of the racism leveled by his white friends towards black children. He surmised that he escaped similar treatment because they thought that he was white due to his lighter skin. When he relayed the incident to his mother, hmm. she told him, Honey, people are stupid. Her advice in this incident taught Mero to control the way of negativity of others affected Is him. Is it iced tea? Yeah, I was just about to say. Oh. He, he enjoyed a nice beverage. How did you know that? Light-skinned rapper. Rapper, light-skinned rapper who didn't even know. But then this is when things turned tragic for poor Ice-T. Oh. When he was in the third grade, his mother died of a heart attack. Oh, that's terrible. And so his dad raised him as a single father for four years with help from a housekeeper. Uh, and his first experience with illicit activity occurred after a bicycle that his father bought him for Christmas was stolen. Oh. After Merrill told his father, Solomon shrugged, well... Then you ain't got no bike. And Marrow stole parts from bicycles and assembled three or four weird-looking, brightly painted <laughs> bikes from the parts. His father either didn't notice or never acknowledged this. And then when Marrow was 13 years old, when Ice-T was 13, his dad died of a heart attack. Oh, my God. Is that awful? Yes. So following his father's death, the orphan Marrow briefly lived with a nearby aunt and then was sent to live with his other aunt, and her husband in View Park, Windsor Hills, an upper-middle-class black neighborhood in South Los Angeles. And while his cousin Earl was preparing That's to leave like for college... the Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, he shared a bedroom with his cousin Earl. That was a little different than yeah. that. But Earl was a fan of rock music and listened only to the local rock radio station. Sharing a room with him sparked Marrow's interest in heavy metal music. And oh. that's how he got into the music industry, because he loved heavy metal. There you go. A little bit of Ice-T. He's now in the world in our American Timelines universe. Ice-T is born. And then Monday, February 17th, 1958, the comic strip BC, written by Johnny Hart, and a satire on current events using cavemen and talking animals as his characters debuted as an offering of the New York Herald Tribune Syndicate. All right. the first BC. Don't you love that comic? Our well, dog is, why do they always chew squeaky toys when we're recording a podcast? I don't <laughs> hey, give me that squeaky toy. Give me <laughs> you can have it back when the podcast is over. <laughs> Poor dog. She doesn't understand that she we're recording a podcast. We're recording a podcast. Don't you know we are History for Jerks? You are a History for Jerks own dog. Okay. February 20th was a Thursday, 1958. And do you know who Nathan Leopold is? Yes, I do. Known for what? Murder with his lover, Loeb. The 1924 random murder of a 14-year-old boy, right? Right. Well, he was granted parole. Oh. On February 20th. The 1924 murder was so long ago, it was... More than 33 years in prison. He was 18 when he and another student at the University of Chicago, Richard Loeb. Richard Loeb, yeah. They were lovers? Well, there's speculation. Uh -huh. uh, one, I think Leopold was in love with him. 
of in love with Loeb or something. And Loeb was murdered at the Stateville Correction Center in 1936. Yeah. But Leopold was released. Huh. I should have done that story, I guess. Yeah. They weren't released on March 13th, but was paroled, I guess, on the, tw- the 20th. Well, once we get to the 20s, you can do that one. That's an interesting story. I don't know if we'll ever get to the 20s. Yeah, we'll be 85 years old. And then the last day of February was a Friday. There's the 28th. And more awful tragedy. Ready? Yeah. 26 students on the way to school and their driver were killed in Floyd County, Kentucky, when their bus ran off the road and slid down a hill into a flooded river in the worst school bus disaster in American oh, history. Oh, gosh. Another 16 students survived by escaping through the emergency exit at the rear of the bus yeah. or out of a window. Oh, my. So a lot of this stuff is thanks to the New York Times. I got most of the stuff that I've talked about from the New York Times. Because okay. uh, the new, the, there's like Wikipedia has gone through month by month and pulled stuff out of the New York Times. And yeah. So that's where I got a lot of this. Okay. And that brings us to March. Where March 11th, according to the New York Times, a U.S. B-47 bomber accidentally dropped an unarmed MK-6 atomic bomb, another one, on a farm at Mars Bluff, South Carolina. Jeez. Five miles east of the city of Florence. Oh, my God. Although there was no danger of a nuclear explosion. Yeah. The conventional TNT explosive within the bomb were inadvertently detonated on impact, hurting six people. The, the United States, or The United Press News Service commented, that it was the first time an atomic bomb was known to have been dropped in the U.S. outside nuclear testing grounds. The explosion demolished the home of the farm owner, Walter Gregg, and injured him, his wife, and three children, and a niece. The blast left a crater 75 feet in diameter and 35 feet deep in his yard. The Strategic Air Command issued a statement afterward that mechanical malfunction of the plane's bomb lock caused the four-jet B-47 to let go of the bomb. So that's just, wow. it's just craziness in the fifth in nineteen fifty eight. A lot of disasters. Cool. A lot of crazy bombs dropping and accidents. Uh, how about this Wednesday, March twelfth? Do you know who Maurice Stokes is? Uh no. He was the nineteen fifty six NBA Rookie of the Year. How would I know that? <laughs> well, because he was a forward for the Cincinnati Royals. That does not. They're now the Sacramento Kings. That's one of your favorite teams. No. But he suffered a brain injury when he was mm-hmm. knocked down during a 96 to 89 win over the Minneapolis Lakers before they moved to LA. So he was knocked down, uh, suffered a brain injury. After being revived, he returned to play and he finished with 24 points. Oh my God. And three days later, he suffered a seizure after a playoff game and was left permanently paralyzed. Really? Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Wow. Isn't that nuts? That's crazy. Poor guy. That's crazy. And according to the Boston Daily Globe, on Thursday, March 13th, 1958, John Aiken of Arlington, Massachusetts, played his first and only National Hockey League game after being called out of the stands at the Boston Garden where he was a spectator. I don't know if you know this. Under NHL rules, I've never heard of this before. Under NHL rules at the time, each team had an employee whose job was to tend goal during practices, be a goaltender, mm-hmm. uh, with the added duty of coming in as an emergency goalie during regular games if the goaltender for either team was injured. So in the second period, Montreal Canadiens goaltender Jacques Plante suffered a skull fracture, and Aiden was ordered to substitute. So he had to come in out of the stands and play in the game. 
Entering when the Boston Bruins were leading 1-0, Aiken made 12 saves, but six goals got past him when Boston won 7-3. Boom. Poor guy. Isn't that oh, a weird well. rule? One guy can come in from the audience and play. <laughs> uh, and then Friday, March 14th, 1958, the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, introduced for the first time the concept of recognition as a gold record for any U.S. Oh. music recording that had achieved at least, you know what the number is? What the sales you have to re- release? To have a gold to, to record? Achieve? Yeah. Oh, a million? One million dollars, yes. Okay. Yep. It certified the 45 RPM recording by Perry Como of Catch a Falling Star as the first RIAA measured gold record. So now you know, Perry Como. That's not that much of a feat anymore. Like not back anymore, in the fifties, back then a million dollars. That's what I'm saying. Back then, yeah, that's huge. <clears throat> yeah, gold records aren't great. Now they go platinum and triple platinum. And right, right. Platinum. I, I've lost track of the money. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Boom. Previously, record labels had presented gold and silver silver awards to their own artists. Oh. This was this was like a standard. So. Mm-hmm. And then on that Saturday, March fifteenth, nineteen fifty eight, after scoring twelve points in that NFL, in that NBA game for the Royals, this is when Maurice Stokes was stricken with encephalitis after a severe concussion sustained in the game three days earlier, and he lapsed into a coma. Mm-hmm. Oh. He would emerge from his coma but be permanently paralyzed and would die at the age of thirty six in nineteen seventy. Poor guy. Poor fella. Yeah. Yeah. All because he played basketball. So anybody out there playing sports, stop doing it. That's right. Their once-in-a-lifetime chance could happen. And then March 17th, 19th. Do you think if that guy never played basketball ever or was just never was interested, he still would have had a stroke doing whatever he was doing? Like, is it your time? Is know. your time or not? I don't know. Because, like... My mom, for example, she's yeah. like an NBA star. No, she, no, she's a health nut. Mm-hmm. Like she exercises all the time. She doesn't eat meat. She's a vegan. She's yeah. like she's in great shape, right? She's yeah, but she's got all these health problems, like Crohn's disease and stuff. Well, I'm sure she doesn't want you to tell everybody. Imagine what she would have if she didn't do all that stuff. Or is it like you you do all that stuff and it still doesn't matter? Something else is going to get you. Yeah. Your refrigerator door's hanging open. Oh, that's not good. How'd no. that happen? No wonder it's breezy in here. No wonder it's a little drafty and a little breezy. Yeah, it's a little draft. My beer fridge was open. That's terrible. That's terrible for the environment. For everybody. Yeah. No wonder it's so cold in here. All right. Anyway. All right. March 17th, 1958. Yeah. The Vanguard 1 launched in 1958. It's the oldest man-made satellite still in orbit, according to the New York Times. So there you go. And here's the crazy thing. It was the smallest of the the first four satellites ever released, measuring 6.4 inches in diameter, comparable to a grapefruit. And it weighs about 3.25 pounds. I always thought satellites were huge. I did, too. I didn't think a satellite could be that small. Well, maybe that's what then. those dumb things are that people, maybe those dumb things that they keep shooting down and stuff, maybe they're just satellites. Well, I know one of the balloons, there's like a some high school class that has a floating ham radio in a balloon, and they're, it's missing. It went missing the same oh, day they geez. shot it down. So I think it's just a ham radio. 
But boy, those stealth bombers are going to shoot the hell out of a ham radio. Right. March 19th, 1958, South Pacific, the film ad- adaptation of the 1949 Rodgers and Hammerstein stage musical. Mm-hmm. Hammerstein? Hammerstein? Rodgers and Hammerstein. No, I- Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's Stein, right? Now it sounds weird. Hammerstein? Now I don't know now that we're saying it. I, I know. Tell. I can't remember. I've heard that name a million times, and now I can't. Rodgers and Hammerstein. Hammerstein. Rodgers and Hammerstein. No, I think it's Hammerstein. Hammerstein. I don't know. Now I can't remember because I said it wrong. Anyway, the film adaptation adaptation, uh, of South Pacific made its premiere with the debut showing at the Criterion Theater in New York City. Originally, it was almost three hours in length, but it'd be edited edited down to be two and a half hours for its nationwide release, and it became the most popular film for the year in 1958. Did you ever see that movie? I have, but it's been a long time. I'm going to watch that man right now. Yeah, we, I think I either was in it or I think I assistant assistantly directed it at my high school. Like I, when I was in college, I went back and helped them direct yeah. that. Right. And so I watched the movie so I knew what I was doing. Anyway, that same day that that premiere happened, the Monarch Underwear Company fire occurred in Manhattan, New York City at 623 Broadway on March 19th, 1958. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the map, that address now is like a Chipotle, I think. Anyway, <laughs> 24 people were killed in a loft fire between Houston Street, which looks like it's spelled Houston, but I've, I've been there recently. Oh, so It's on the Lower East Side, know. so I was traipsing all over these spaces so mm-hmm. uh 24 people were killed in a law fire between houston street and bleaker street and 15 more were injured six of the injured were hurt when they leapt from the building and missed fire nets ouch the conflagration began in the third floor textile printing plant of an edifice in which the workrooms of several businesses were located mm-hmm. 10 corpses were found underneath workbenches ah. on the monarch underwear company of the Monarch Underwear Company on the fourth floor. The fire started at 4.30 p.m. and lasted one and a half hours. It began in a processing oven of STS Textile Company. The, uh... Man. Yeah, and that, that building was located just a few blocks from Washington Place near Green Street, the former locale of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Yep. And we, we've talked about that, right? The Triangle Factory Fire of March 25th, 1911. <clears throat> I think we've mentioned it. 145 people. Yeah. I don't know why we mentioned that. Something had something to do with that that we mentioned. Yeah, there's a lot of things that have to do with that. And then Thursday, March 20th, 1958, New York City Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr. asked for legislation to prevent fires like the one at 623 Broadway. Well, good. Uh, yeah. Uh, Wagner and New York City Fire Commissioner Edward F. Kavanaugh both stated that the structure did not violate fire and building codes, so that something needed to be done. Wagner called on the New York City Council to enact necessary ordinances quickly. Among those he suggested were the installation of automatic fire sprinkling systems. Stop! Hey, stop wrestling! Stay quiet, Wendy. The installation of automatic fire sprinkling systems. The building... The building of fireproof partitioning walls and lengthy rooms, the construction of full ceilings and loft buildings, and making it mandatory that each worker be given a fire drill. <laughs> Obviously, some people didn't know what to do because they didn't have fire drills, so they hid under their desks from fire. Oh, really? That's why they found all those corpses under desks. Oh, the poor guys. 
And that was the same day that Holly Hunter was born, American film actress and Academy Award winner. Okay. And you have to guess what city? No, I do not. In Georgia that she was born in. Uh, Macon. Nope. Starts with a C. And it rhymes with? Chlamydia. <laughs> no, it rhymes with Fonyers. What? Conyers? Conyers, Georgia, yeah. Okay. And I only made you do that because I forgot to look up her alma mater. And oh, thank God. I know, it's the stuff you hate. I don't care. No, I'm not giving you your squeaky ball till the recording is over. These are two bad dogs. They want to be on the podcast today. They both said we want to be on this podcast right now. They're bad. Friday, March 21st, 1958. Mm-hmm. The existence of a new strain of the bacterium Staphylococcus. Aureus. Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus aureus. Mm-hmm. That was resistant to penicillin. Staph infection. And other known antibiotics. Yeah, staph infection was announced by the U.S. Public Health Service. Oh. A new antibiotic, methicillin, would be discovered in 1960 as effective against the new strain, but at this point, we don't have that. Ooh. And that would be later matched by another strain, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus, which is MRSA. That's what yes, MRSA is. Medicillin yeah. resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what MRSA ever stood for. I didn't understand, but now you know. I only explained all that so we knew what MRSA meant. All right. And then that same day, so this isn't American, but I had to include this because this is crazy. Okay. On top of all this other shit that was going on, a fire in the Egyptian town of Damat Kuter mm-hmm. killed at least 16 people and seriously injured another 11. After starting in a small hut with a straw roof and then being spread, the fire was spread by pigeons who had been on the hut's roof. Oh, gosh. Flying in agony on fire, a United United Press report noted, the birds acted as flying torches, setting fire to the straw roofs of hundreds of other huts. Oh, Lord. Isn't that crazy? That is. That same time while that was happening, bulldozers and helicopters were able to end a 36-hour crisis at a small restaurant on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, where more than 800 travelers trapped by a blizzard were crowded in a restaurant that had a capacity of over 100. Uh, so 800 tell me people again. stuck in 100 oh my because gosh. of a blizzard. A traffic jam of over 1,000 cars, buses, and trucks caused by 42 inches of snowfall on a Wednesday imagine? night had stalled on a 14-mile stretch of the highway and had made their way to the only shelter available, a Howard Johnson's restaurant. And there was 800 fucking people there? In a 100-size oh. restaurant. And it was like the only place you be could be. You would be able to sit. Snow everywhere. You yeah, probably would have just, standing room only. Yeah, it'd be awful. Just Everybody's just huddled together. Yep. There's nothing you can do. You have to wait for helicopters and bulldozers. That would it be was my 36 nightmare. hours. 36 I'd, hours. I'd go back outside. <laughs> Oh, you had to take turns going outside. I've had people pee and poop outside. Ugh. And while while the Egyptian pigeon burning yeah. was happening and that was happening, while both things were happening, English film actor Gary Oldman was being born in London. <laughs> so right. everyone can remember Gary Oldman's birthday with that. And every time you see a Gary Oldman movie, you'll think of pigeons on fire burning down huts while... 800 people are stuck in a 100 Howard Johnson, 100 capacity Howard, Howard Johnson, Johnson in the snow. There you go. All right. There's an earworm for you. Remember that, everybody. March 22nd, 1958, Mike Todd. You know who he was? Successful film and theatrical producer, Mike Todd. I don't know. He was married to- Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. That's right. How'd you know that? 
I remember the name You're now. You're a genius. You're a gorgeous genius. No. Anyway, he was killed on this date oh. in the crash of his Lodestar twin-engine airplane, along with his biographer and screenwriter, Art Kahn, who was 48 years old. And then pilot Bill Verner and co-pilot Tom Barkley were also killed. The overloaded plane was flying Todd back home to Hollywood after his promotional visit to Albuquerque, New Mexico, when it suffered an engine failure, failure and crashed near Grant's. Grants, wherever that is. He uh anyway. <coughs> we're getting there. We're getting to April. We're getting to Amy's big story. March twenty third, nineteen fifty eight was a Sunday, and the University of Kentucky Wildcats won the NCAA basketball championship, defeating oh. the Seattle University Chieftains eighty four to seventy two. Who cares? At the finals at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. Despite being on the losing team, Seattle's Elgin Baylor was voted the game's most valuable player. And on March 24th, that Monday, nine of the 24 people on the Braniff Airways Flight 971 were killed when it crashed shortly after taking off from Miami on a flight to Panama. The four-engine Douglas DC-7C propeller-driven airplane experienced an engine fire and returned to the Miami airport for an emergency landing. But the burning wing ripped loose and the plane crashed into the Everglades and burned in a marsh more than four miles from the runway. Oh, my God. An investigation later blamed the crash on the failure of the captain to maintain altitude during an emergency return to the airport due to his undue preoccupation, undue preoccupation with an engine fire following takeoff. Oh, God. I think that's pretty due preoccupation. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. The loss of the airplane's wing. Which I thought felt... they were going to say like he's looking at a porno magazine. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. No, because he was, oh, man, the engine's on fire. And he's freaking out. Well, of course he was. Yeah. The loss of the airplane's wing, which fell 50 yards from the cabin, proved to be fortunate. Survivors survivors told investigators that all aboard might have been killed had that flaming wing <coughs> not ripped out loose from the plane. They all would have been engulfed in, pl- in flames. Oh, my God. Uh, and also the Everglade marshes helped absorb the shock of the impact. Yep. Wow. And on that same day that that happened, after being drafted, popular American singer Elvis Presley was inducted into the U.S. Army as a private for a two-year tour of duty. That's right. And you want to guess what his serial number was? No. I'm not guessing that. It was 533-1076. What? Four. One. No, one, duh. You don't even know Elvis's serial number? Okay, moving on. fan are you? Moving on. Okay, we'll move on. Wednesday, March 26th was the 30th Academy Awards ceremony. The motion picture, The Bridge on the River, Kwai won seven Oscars. Wow. Best picture. Wow. And I watched that movie and I didn't care for it. It was boring, right? Bored. I was bored because now we have Marvel. Right. And then we got one more birthday and then you can jump in on your thing, right? Okie doke. Friday, March twenty eighth. The son of professional wrestler Larry the Axe Hennig. This guy was born and was childhood friends with fellow wrestler Rick Rude as well as Paul Schulte of Manchester, Vermont, who was also known as Mr. Perfect. They attended Robbinsdale High School in his hometown of Robbinsdale, Minnesota, along time Tom, alongside Tom Zank, Brady Boone, Nikita Koloff, John Nord, Road Warrior Hawk, and Barry Darso, who was Smash, from Max and Smash. They all became pro wrestlers. Who is it? Larry Hennig's son, know. Mr. Perfect. I, listen. Blank Hennig. <laughs> what? I gave you his last name is Hennig. His How nickname am I is Mr. To Perfect. How fucking know? 
How do I know? You don't know who Mr. Perfect is? No. Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig? No. He was perfect. He would <laughs> spit his gum out and be able to swat it into the air. That is so stupid. He could play tennis really good. That's stupid, too. Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. He was master of the perfect plex. He was born. Happy birthday, Mr. Perfect. Rest in peace also, Mr. Perfect, who, as Macho Man Savage said in his rap song, he's a perfect friend. <laughs> You're ridiculous. Macho Man made a rap song about Mr. Perfect. Oh, my God. Somebody twist my neck right now, please. Twist your neck? Twist it off. Twist his dick! All right. <laughs> the old dick twist. All right. And that brings us to April 4th, 1958, where Amy... is going to tell us Beautiful tale. Amy is going to tell us... About, let me guess, a killing, a murder. A murder. All right. Um, I wonder if I need to take a. You need a little take a breather first? Take a little dumperoo first? Yes, let me take. I'm Drop a couple hear. deuces first? Hold on, I need to. I was gonna and our listeners, while Amy goes to poop, uh, like really just Don't fill our that. toilet I'm not, nasty. That's not what I'm doing. Oh, you're not? No. You're going to do a cartwheel break? You do a cartwheel break, and I'll do a worm break. I'm going to do the worm. While we are taking a break, our listeners can listen to this awesome ad. Hey, nerds, check out the Gruff and Loud show on YouTube. You got a kid. That's what you think. I forgot to tell you. Remember that time you banged Shannon Doherty? I, yeah, you got I her pregnant. You got her pregnant, bro. Kid's yeah. 26 now. Well, I'm glad. The kid's probably doing all right. No, he's not. He needs you. He needs a father. Well, I I was a donor, not a father. No. He needs a real father to step up and teach him how to fish. Well, and if you not... can teach him how to fish, you will have successfully raised him. <laughs> you have 30 minutes. Here he is. <laughs> <laughs> teach him how to fish. 30 minutes. Uh, minnows work better than worms. Oh, you did it! Hooray! You have successfully fathered Shannon Doherty's child. Congratulations! Been unlocked. Bing, 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 bing. Confetti, streamers, fireworks, <laughs> What's happening? What are we talking about? Check out the Gruff and Loud Show on YouTube. And home. we're and we're back. We are history for jerks, and we are back. You thought we weren't coming back. You thought the podcast was over, but guess what? We are back. While I have you here, listeners, before we get started, before we finish up this episode, I want to tell you guys what you can expect when you start taking Magic Mind. Uh, day one, you feel an elevated sense of energy and a sense of calm focus within an hour of taking Magic Mind. Uh, they don't rely on massive amounts of caffeine like other energy shots because caffeine is counterproductive for optimal focus. Did you know that? You don't don't expect to be wired. Expect to be dialed in. You can expect to feel 50 to 60% of the benefits on day one as the ingredients go to work. But day two, you can feel about 75% of the effects. And you'll notice that you don't need to reach for that afternoon caffeine boost anymore. And then on day three... You'll feel 100% of the benefits now that nutrients like cordyceps, mushrooms, and ashwagandha have started to reach full effect. I'm telling you, you got to check it out. Check out Magic Mind, and you yourselves can do this cheaper than everybody else in the world using 
American Timelines as your way to get a deal. All you have to do is go to www.magicmind.co, that's C-O, slash American. The link is in the description if that's too long for you. And you can get up to 50, 56% off your subscription. You get up to 56% off the subscription for the next 10 days with my code, American20. Okay? You think it's going to be 20% off, but no, it's 56% off because the Magic Mind people kick ass. Check it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. All right. Oh, and you know what? What? I just remembered. This is episode 200. Is it really? This is our 200th episode. Ooh, ooh. And the special for you guys for our 200th episode, Amy's got to take her top off. Untrue. All right, I'll take my top off. What's new? Oh, yeah, I do a lot of shirtless podcasting. That's not different. Well, what can, what can we do for our 200th episode? Let's have dogs on the podcast. <laughs> our special <laughs> 200th episode guest, our dogs. So I'll give her the squeaky toy back. There's our dogs. <laughs> they can't wait to squeak it. All right. That's our special 200th episode. I'm going to... Hold on. There's a hair. She's going to be squeaking that throughout. Why did I give that to her? Why did you give it to her? All right, I'm going to take it back away. She's got another one. Where's the other one? Right here. She wants the squeaky one, though. And so was the little guy. He wants that, too. Wheezy and Ralphie are bad dogs, but they're babies, and we love them. All right. I'm, okay. gonna, I'm going to discuss the murder of John Stampanato Jr. You know what I just thought of before you get into this John Stampanato Jr. bit? Yeah. When we started this podcast, our dogs were Stella and Floyd. Yeah. We lost both of our dogs and got two new dogs during, as long as we've been doing this podcast. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Okay. And you know what? Can I talk now? Or can you this shut the a, fuck up like now? It's like our five-year anniversary, too. It is? Of doing this podcast. Really? 200 episodes in five years. Holy shit. That's not a very good rate. That's fine. All right. That's fine. Thank you, listeners, for listening. 200 episodes. Get your tits out. Get Woo-ha! your tits out. We have to do something to celebrate. That's what we did. All okay? right. Okay? All right. Let's go. Let's talk about a murder for our 200th episode. John Stampanato. Yeah. So he was born to Italian-American parents in Illinois. Wait, you're only talking to the I... microphone sometimes. Okay. There you go. Into the microphone. Thank you. Go ahead. He was, he say was, that again. He was born to Italian-American parents in Illinois. Okay. He was, Then he was sent to a military academy. Then he joined the Marines in 1943 and okay. saw action in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Oh, Pacific Theater. Then he was discharged in China. Okay. China. China. Say it like that. As Trump says, yeah. China. China. He met Sarah Udish, who was a Turkish dressmaker. Sarah Udish? Yes. How do you spell Udish? U-T-U-S-H. Udish. Okay. I don't know. She's a dressmaker? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he converted to Islam for he, her? He met her in China? Yeah. China. Okay. <laughs> and then he converted, committed to- Converted committed, to Islam converted for her, and Islam. they got married in May of 1946. Okay. He briefly ran a seedy nightclub. Oh, then he abandoned his wife and newborn about a year later. Aww. So then he moves to L.A., and it, where he found work with Meyer Mickey Cohen, the infamous L.A. mob kingpin. Stampanato acted as the mobster's bodyguard and pimp. So, meanwhile, he had a thing for starlets. Starlets. He had a big boner for starlets. <laughs> <And> so- <laughs> Doesn't everybody have a big boner for starlets? And soon, 
He set his sights on the most international superstar of the time, okay. Miss Lana Turner. Ooh. So she had first become famous when she was discovered by an agent while skipping class at the Top Hat Malt Shop in Los Angeles in 1936. Oh, really? Over the next 15 years, she became one of Hollywood's most coveted sex symbols. When Stampanato met Turner around 1957, she was in the middle of filming a movie. Okay. One of her previous projects had flopped, and she has just been divorced from her fifth husband. Okay. So under the alias John Steele, Stampanato courted Turner on set. He would leave her phone calls and letters, flowers, jewelry, and he even had a portrait made of her. Really? So she eventually learns who he is because he wouldn't sign any of this stuff He'd, except for John Steele. She knows who that is. But yeah. So eventually she figures it out, and um, she's confronted by him. And he tells her, if, I've re- if I'd revealed who I really was, you would not have had anything to do with me. Now that I have you, I'll never let you go. Mm. So she ends up going ahead to date him. Okay. Even though she has reservations. She's a little weird. She ends up paying for his living expenses and his gambling debts. She huh. introduced him to her 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane, the child of her second marriage to restaurateur Stephen Crane. I didn't realize she would have been married to Stephen Crane. Well, this is her fifth divorce, so oh, she's been married quite Lana a few Turner times. Turner just can't find the right one. But maybe this guy's the right one, finally. Johnny Stampanato was often violent with Turner and know. reportedly abused her during the frequent arguments while Crane watched. Stampanato once even threatened to mutilate... the child. Yeah. The child Crane. Yes. Yeah. He once even threatened to mutilate Turner's face and torture her daughter. Yikes. It took less than a year for Turner to decide that her gangster wasn't a good long-term prospect. Yeah, don't date a gangster. Come on. So she goes to England to film the romantic drama Another Time, Another Place with Sean Connery, who was kind of a newcomer at the time. Not a fan of the ladies, are you, Trebek? (laughs) She thought she finally had a chance to cut Stampanato out. So... He refuses to accept her rejection, though. Okay. And he's furiously jealous of these rumors that Connery and Turner are having a thing. Well, why wouldn't you bang Sean Connery? So he flies to London, and when he gets there and she refuses to see him on set, he marches to the studio anyway where he points a gun at Sean Connery's chest. Sean Connery? So as the story goes, Connery, who was an ex-Royal Navy sailor and bodybuilder... I was going to say, you don't fuck with Sean Connery. He reflexively twisted the pistol out of Stampanato's hand and punched him in the nose. Yeah, go Sean Connery. That's cool. So Stampanato ran off before the the police got there. Take that, Trebek. So his rage reportedly reached a boiling point on the night of the 1958 Academy Awards when when um, Turner refused to bring him as her date. Okay. So Which according, I talked about. I just talked about that. That's where, right. Uh, Bridge on the River Quiet won everything. According to court proceedings, Turner planned to cut Stampanato off for good on the night of April 4th and warned Crane that the evening would be a tough one. Stampanato came over to the house, only to have Turner allegedly tell him, Tonight, mister, I'm giving you your walking papers. I'm through with you. It's over. These boots are made for walking. So he gets in, flies into a rage. Yeah? Threatens to murder Turner along with her mother and Cheryl Crane, who overhears the fight from her upstairs bedroom. She should have had Sean Connery with her. 
in the official courtroom account, a terrified crane, Cheryl, the little girl, yes. runs downstairs to the kitchen, grabs a butcher knife, creeps to her mother's bedroom door. Opening the door, she mistook a clothes hanger in Stampinato's hand for a gun and oh. impulsively stepped forward and plunged the knife between his ribs. Good. Johnny Stampinato was dead within minutes. His Whoa. last words were, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? Oh, my God. So Lana Turner knew how bad her situation looked. Yeah. Among the first people she called when Stampinato fell dead in her bedroom was Jerry Geisler, who was the lawyer who Hollywood turned to when it had to escape the consequences of the worst crimes. Oh, everybody called Jerry Geisler? <clears throat> yes. Call Jerry Geisler. He'll fix it. He had defended Errol Flynn for all the rape, rape charges oh, and had come to the defense of Bugsy Siegel. I didn't know Errol <laughs> Flynn had a bunch of rape charges. Oh, yes. He's a big rapist, huh? Geisler's first move was to get Crane and Turner together in a room to coach them through their story. Yeah. Rumors have persisted after a friend of Stompanato's decried Crane's ruling in court that it was actually Turner and not Crane who murdered Stompanato because she found him in bed with her daughter. Oh. By this account, Geisler would have convinced Cheryl Crane to take the fall for the murder since she was likely to get a lighter sentence as a minor. Okay. Both Crane and Turner have only ever maintained the story of self-defense that they told in court. Okay. So when Lana Turner took the stand in a, quote, circus-like hearing, her dramatic and anxious hour-long testimony revealed the sordid details of Johnny Stampinato's abuse and violence. Yeah. She appeared sympathetic and desperate and her daughter devoted and terrified. It took only hours for the jury to return a verdict of justifiable homicide for Lana Turner's daughter, which means she would not... She wouldn't face conflict. Yeah. Justifiable homicide. So she... Um, when she did go to a juvenile delinquency center while this all was going on, and she would escape twice. Oh my god! But Poor um, thing. then she finally came, went and lived with her father, Stephen Crane, at his Hollywood restaurant, um, area where he worked and lived, and that. So the year after Johnny Stampanato's death, Turner would go on to star in Imitation of Life, the biggest success of her career, really? before taking a number of roles in theater and television until her death in 1995. Oh, she lived to the 90s? <clears throat> Cheryl Crane struggled with addiction before developing a career in real estate and settling down with her wife, Josh Leroy. But didn't Cheryl Crane also have a, another career, a uh, stage name Cheryl Crow? No. She, no? They're not the same person? No. Oh. She's always maintained that she alone was responsible for the murder of John Johnny Stampanato and for no other reason than to protect her mother from an abusive boyfriend. Yep. And that's the story, oh, Larry. Wow, I never knew that. I never knew that about Lana Turner and uh, all that. Any of that. I didn't know much about Lana Turner, but... It's quite a sordid tale. I don't know much. She's, look at how pretty. Is that Lana Turner yeah, or the daughter? That's Lana Turner. She is pretty. She is so pretty. So do you think she did it? No. You think the daughter did it? Uh, yeah. I don't think she would make her. What kind of mother would ask your child to go to jail for you? Well, it's not jail. It's just. Well, it could have been. Juvie, right? It could have been. Well, juvenile still. What yeah. kind of mother would send, you know, for something you did? Yeah, that's true. So. Well, yeah. All right. Well, good on the daughter, and I hope she's doing well. She's married and happy. And you said she's a, what is she? A lesbian? No. Oh. <laughs> Her job. Oh. <laughs> Real estate agent. Real estate agent. I was thinking lawyer or something. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That's I, mean, I thought you were yeah, getting I wasn't it. labeling her as, I didn't care about that part. I was like, what her job was. Anyway. <laughs> but she is a lesbian real estate agent. 
Yep. But actually, it's a people first language, so a real estate agent who is a who is a lesbian. Well, a real estate agent is a person either. A person who is a real estate agent and likes vagina. No, that's not the that correct. Correct, say it. No. Well, you don't have to even say the. Th- who cares what they want to bang? I don't. I don't. I'm I not thought you were saying like that. You, so who cares? Just <laughs> kidding, everybody. We love gays. In fact, yes, we, we are do. now going to take. A, 15 minutes and name every And we apologize gay. to all the gays we want to name for not gay. remembering Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein. Right now we know it. Or is it Rogers and Hammerstein? Shit. Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein. We apologize to all the gays. I don't know, gays. Correct us, gay friends. Uh, so let's go through. Uh, let's name every gay person. No. All of our gay All right. It's time to get out of here, Jeff Chuck Berry. <laughs> Stop. Time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Tim Anderson. Uh, okay, get out of here, Chuck Berry. I'm going to name somebody who's not gay. Just to <laughs> uh, Larry. The cable Top guy. Low. All right. I love everybody. Thanks Bye. for sleeping with us for our 200th episode. And if you're in bed right now, listen to us. Let's coax you to sleep. Good night. Sleep tight. Don't Bat Sherman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.